The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 5th day of September 2013. Welcome to episode 280 of The Corbett Report podcast, Who Was Really Behind the 9-11 Attacks? Well, as we sit here in September of 2013, of course, we are on the cusp of the 12th anniversary of those events of September 11th, 2001. 12 years to investigate what really happened that day. 12 years with which to accumulate information that utterly destroys the official narrative that we are asked to believe that was produced by the 9-11 Commission and other such bodies and official institutions in the wake of those attacks. But it strikes me that as the 9-11 Truth Movement is now turning 12 in many significant respects, it is also a time in which, like any 12-year-old, one starts to think of the ending of childhood and the beginning of adolescence and growing into maturity. And in that time frame, of course, we have to start talking tough and using tough love on a wayward child. And in many respects, that is what the 9-11 Truth Movement unfortunately, is becoming. As we sit here, again, 12 years after the events of 9-11-2001, if the very best that the 9-11 Truth Movement can muster is to point to the destruction of the, the towers and to throw in a few token facts, such as the Larry Silverstein pullet comment, and couple that with endless internecine squabbling over the destruction of the towers, if that is the best that the 9-11 Truth Movement is capable of, then perhaps it really is deserving of that parody, that straw man argument that is so often used to refute it, that 9-11 truth is equivalent to thinking that it was Cheney sitting in a bunker with a plunger on 9-11-2001. Because if we cannot actually use the 12 years of research that has now gone on into the events of that day and the people and connections behind it, if we cannot use that research to come up with something more convincing than simply looking at the Twin Towers and the destruction of WTC7, which, however important it may be, is not the totality of what happened on 9-11. If we cannot move past that, if we cannot point to the real research that has gone on since then, if we cannot muster anything more than a few token facts and uh, sound bites, then we really have signally failed as a movement. Now, that is the bad news. The good news is that there are researchers who have been diligently and patiently and perseveringly working behind the scenes to piece together many of the facts, names, dates, locations, and events that really do tie 9-11 into its historical context through which we can really understand it as the false flag operation that it so obviously is. Now, this is something that, unfortunately, is not getting a lot of attention even within the 9-11 truth movement such that it exists anymore. And unfortunately, we're arriving at that time where the obvious parallels to the JFK assassination investigation start to rear their quite ugly heads. And this, of course, raises the specter of a movement that for half a century now has been investigating that particular event and is still no closer today, in fact, much further today from any possibility of any type of actual prosecution or any bringing to justice any of the perpetrators of that event. And unfortunately, even though it has largely won the battle in the, the court of public opinion and now upwards of 80 to 90 percent of Americans, depending on the poll, understand that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, it is still treated absolutely unquestioningly as the work of a single lone nut in the media. And they have even managed to co-opt the terminology of the JFK assassination investigation to turn it on its very head so that now talking about the grassy knoll is now seen as craziness, when, of course, the real craziness is in the official story. But exactly as in the JFK assassination investigation, where if the best that they could muster was simply to talk about the magic bullet and 
and to say that, well, Lee Harvey Oswald could not have fired the bullet that supposedly went through Kennedy and Connolly, well, that is very much true, but it gets no one no closer whatsoever to understanding who actually committed that, uh, that crime or why. And in the exact same way, we could argue for forever, really, and that's probably ultimately the purpose of this, to argue forever over the destruction of the towers, and it will get us no closer, not one jot, to understanding who did these attacks or why. So it is incumbent on all of us who really and truly do want to see justice for what happened on that day, and justice not only for the 3,000 victims of that day, but of course for the million-plus lives that have been taken in the wars that have been waged in the name of that false flag operation. For those of us who want justice for that, it is incumbent on us to continue this investigation and to start naming the names and laying out the case that at least in some alternate universe where it would even be conceivable that this would be brought before a court of justice, that we could start laying the foundations for such a case. And this is not, again, the the title of today's episode, who was really behind the 9-11 attacks, is not a rhetorical question. This is a very real question that doesn't have vague answers about government entities or or some, some vague shadowy cabal. It has actual names of actual people that we can actually pinpoint about their their whereabouts, their their goings-on, their connections, and what they were actually doing and involved with on 9-11 that would lead us towards, at the very least, putting them on the suspect list so that a future investigation that really and truly did have powers to prosecute these individuals would be able to form a case against them. And that is exactly the approach that I took when I gave my presentation to the 9-11 Revisited Conference last year in Kuala Lumpur. First, let's examine the actions of former Defense Secretary Rumsfeld. As the top-ranking executive officer in the Department of Defense, Rumsfeld was, on the morning of 9-11, Uh, as per U.S. Code, Title 10, Section 113, second only to the President in the military hierarchy of the United States. Together with President Bush, Rumsfeld exercised the power of the National Command Authority, which includes joint control over the decision to launch a strategic nuclear weapons strike. Additionally, according to the 9-11 Commission's own final report, prior to 9-11, it was understood that an order to shoot down a commercial aircraft would have to be issued by the National Command Authority. By the 9-11 Commission's own account, we know that President Bush, attending an event at an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, was effectively removed from decision-making during the hours of the attacks themselves. According to the official narrative of the attacks, the President did not have an open channel of communication with Washington, could not reach key officials for extended periods of time, could not maintain contact with the White House Shelter Conference Room, did not talk to Vice President Cheney until 9.45, almost 10 minutes after Flight 77 hit the Pentagon, and did not talk to Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld until after 10 a.m. Thus, Rumsfeld was by default the highest-ranking military authority in Washington that morning and the only one with the authority to issue a shoot-down order during the time of the Pentagon attack. Given Secretary Rumsfeld's vital importance in the chain of command on 9-11, a careful study of his response to the attacks that morning are in order. The record of Rumsfeld's actions on 9-11 are well documented and themselves not a matter of controversy. This is Rumsfeld's own statement to the 9-11 Commission about his whereabouts that morning. Quote, On the morning of September 11, 2001, I was hosting a meeting for some, some of the members of Congress. Ironically, in the course of the conversation, I stressed how important it was for our country to be adequately prepared for the unexpected. Someone handed me a note that a plane had hit one of the World Trade Center towers. Later, I was in my office with a CIA briefer when I was told a second plane had hit the other tower. Shortly thereafter, at 9.38 a.m., the Pentagon shook with an explosion of a then-unknown origin. I went outside to determine what had happened. I was not there long, apparently, because I am told I was back in the Pentagon with the crisis action team by shortly before or after 10 a.m. The implications of this statement alone are remarkable. 
By 9.05 a.m., two minutes after United Flight 175 hit the south tower of the World Trade Center, it was generally understood among senior government officials that, in the infamous words of White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card, America is under attack. Yet at this time, the top-ranking military officer in the United States government, the only one in the loop that day with the ability to give the authority to shoot down hostile civilian aircraft, made no attempt whatsoever to coordinate a response to this acknowledged attack. He did not establish the details of the flights involved or possible other hostile aircraft with NORAD or the FAA. He did not make any effort to determine what interceptors, if any, had been launched in response to the two jets in New York. And he certainly did not issue any directions for intercepting any other potential aircraft. Instead, by his own account, he proceeded with a regularly scheduled meeting with his CIA briefer, Denny Watson. It's important to note that Rumsfeld's act, Rumsfeld activity, I'm sorry, it's important to note that Rumsfeld actively deflected attempts by his staff to engage him in that crucial window of the time that Flight 77 was bearing down on the Pentagon. According to Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, Victoria Clark, she and other key DOD staffers had gone into Rumsfeld's office to, quote, tell him that the crisis management process was starting up. But Rumsfeld insisted that he needed to make a few phone calls and proceed with his regularly scheduled 9.30 briefing. Instead, he told Clark to wait for him in the Executive Support Center. During the entire time that Flight 77 approached the Pentagon, Rumsfeld proceeded with his business as usual. During this 35-minute window of time between the second strike on the, on the Twin Towers and the crash of Flight 77 into the Pentagon, at 9.38 a.m., the incalculably complex interlocking mechanisms of the most sophisticated defense system in the history of the world sprang into action. Counterterrorism Chief Richard Clark established a video conference to coordinate a crisis response to the attacks. The FAA Command Center issued a ground stop for all air traffic landing or transitioning through New York, Boston, Cleveland, and Washington air centers. The Northeast Air Defense sorry, the Northeast Air Defense Sector of NORAD launched F-15s to establish a combat air patrol over New York City. Yet throughout it all, the chief executive in command of the United States military in the president's absence sat in his office, giving no outward indication that he was aware of any of these activ activities and certainly making no effort to involve himself with any of them. Then, when the plane finally did hit the Pentagon, once again, the most important person in the military chain of command abandoned his post altogether, theoretically jeopardizing himself and demonstrably obstructing the military response to any other potential attackers to participate in a meaningless photo opportunity on the lawn of the Pentagon, helping first responders to carry the wounded into an ambulance. Secretary Rumsfeld uh, was in his uh, suite of offices on the other side of the building from the impact zone. He felt it, um, and he immediately was on the attack site within moments, uh, much to the displeasure of his security people, but he did it. And there are pictures of the secretary helping other men carry stretchers of the injured. Now, I hope that my presentation at the 9-11 Revisited conference went to show that we do not need to rely on massive amounts of speculation in order to form the basis of the, the case that could be brought against these 9-11 suspects, such as Donald Rumsfeld, or as I go on to talk about in that presentation, Dick Cheney. Again, two people that we don't have to go very far out on a limb to say would be the prime suspects in any serious investigation of 9-11, and not for any reasons of wild speculation, but for parts of the documentable record and the actual facts that we can point to that in any reasonable person's mind would at least raise the red flags of treason and, uh, and culpability in those attacks. So this is the type of case that we have to construct, and it involves not only names that we are all familiar with, including Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, more of which you can get from basically any source on the internet, but some of the names that 
probably, unless you were a diligent 9-11 researcher, you probably have never even encountered. So let's start getting into some of the names that may be a little bit more obscure and starting to look at some of the actual people behind the events of 9-11. And in that regard, we're going to start with a very very interesting person of interest, as the FBI would no doubt label him if they were going to conduct a real investigation. And that is L. Paul Bremer, who people will probably know as the person who went on to become the governor of Iraq during the U.S. occupation. But he had some interesting connections that extended both previous to and after the events of 9-11 itself. And the first place that I'd like to start with our investigation of L. Paul Bremer is to simply note his appearance in the Project Constellation audio from Richard Andrew Grove, which set out Richard Grove's startling and, again, must-listen testimony if you've never heard it before, about his time with Silverstream Technologies creating and selling software to massive insurance and financial companies like AIG and Martian McLennan. Before I move on to some other important topics and experiences, I'd like to share with you some insight about the who, how, and why of September 11th. Without getting into the sordid details of why the towers were brought down through controlled demolition and making the connections between the associated risks and costs of asbestos removal and the infamous decision made by the terrorists to take a money-losing operation and turn it into a money-making, never-ending war, I'll offer this sample. First, I would note that L. Paul Jerry Bremer, who was in charge of the coalition reconstruction element of the post-9-11 Hegelian plan being carried out in Iraq, used to work for Heinz Kissinger, better known to the public as Henry. Bremer was also the one who announced the capture of Saddam Hussein, lucky guy, and was responsible for approximately $10 billion unaccounted for in Iraq reconstruction money, which was donated by way of U.S. taxpayers' blood, sweat, and tears. In fact, I've seen the accounting protocols, or rather lack thereof, that went on in Iraq. It's a complete fraud of the American taxpayer. Open, unguarded, flatbed trucks with bricks of billions of U.S. dollars out in the open, driving around without anyone keeping track of where they're going or who was receiving the money. But here's what you probably don't know. L. Paul Jerry Bremer's last gig before capitalizing on the Iraq war was at Marsha McLennan, where Jerry was the CEO of Marsh's Risk Management Collective. You know, it's interesting that no one else has noticed that Marsh was at the heart of 9-11, and despite being woven into almost every aspect of the events, few question Marsh's role in any of it. That's right, as Richard Grove indicates, Paul Bremer at the time of 9-11 was the CEO of Political Risk for Martian McLennan, the world's largest professional services risk management and insurance brokerage firm, which was interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, because Paul Bremer, for the preceding few years before the 9-11 attack, had been one of the uh, country's largest proponents of the terror threat to the United States homeland. And this comes from his time as one of the uh, people on the Bipartisan Commission, the National Commission on Terrorism, a blue ribbon panel that was put together by Congress in 1999 to talk about the the dangers of catastrophic terrorism in the United States, which issued its final report in June 2000, just a year before the attacks. Just a few months before the attacks, in February of 2001, Bremer got up to talk about the Bush administration in a speech, saying, quote, what they will do is stagger along until there's a major incident and then suddenly say, oh my God, shouldn't we be organized to deal with this? And then, lo and behold, on 9-11-2001, the very area of the World Trade Center where his offices and the offices of the other Martian McLennan workers were situated happened to be the exact area that was struck by the airplane running into the World Trade Center. And don't worry, Paul Bremer was safe and sound, not in his offices that morning, like so many of the other executives who otherwise would have or even should have, by all rights, been there in the World Trade Center that morning, many of which were, for example, away in playing golf with uh, Warren Buffett in Nebraska, where they just happened to be uh, dropped in on by George Bush later that day, or people like uh, the George Bush's first cousin, Jim Pierce, who was working in World the World Trade Center, whose offices, uh, who had actually scheduled a meeting on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center that morning, but 
the night before changed the location of that meeting to the Millennium Hotel, from which he actually watched the plane running into the World Trade Center, where 12 of the people that he was supposed to be meeting with perished in that meeting. So a very interesting turn of events for the president's first cousin. But but then again, talking about Paul Bremer, he was not in his offices that day, so he did not have to worry about the death and destruction that was taking place there. He was in the air heading towards New York and was diverted because of the ground stop to Baltimore. And very quickly, he appeared on N- NBC in Washington in order to cement the official narrative of the events of 9-11 on national TV. This is a very well-planned, very well-coordinated attack, which suggests it's very well organized centrally. And there are only three or four candidates in the world, really, who could have conducted this attack. Bin Laden comes to mind right away, Mr. Bremer. Indeed, he certainly does. Bin Laden was involved in the first attack on the World Trade Center, which had as its intention doing exactly what happened here, which was to collapse both towers. He certainly has to be a prime suspect. But there are others in the Middle East, and uh, there are at least two states, Iran and Iraq, which should at least remain on the list of... Potential suspect. Mr. Bremer, I, I want to speak to that for a second. When the Oklahoma City incident occurred, the immediate response from a lot of people was that it came from some Arab terrorist group. Um, is there any reason why we ought to be cautious about that kind of an assumption on this particular incident, on these incidents? Well, of course. Uh, what you have to work with at this stage, since we don't have any hard intelligence apparently and we don't have any forensic evidence is is motivations and capabilities and so when I list four potential groups I'm working mostly from motivations and proven capabilities in the past Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you can exclude that some other kind of group could have come out of nowhere and done this but at least as a working hypothesis in the first chaotic hours here after this attack you have to start somewhere and you have to start with what you know about the past and which groups have motives. All okay. right. Paul Bremer, thank you. We appreciate for, it, Mr. Bremer. Thank you very us. much. We, uh, we, should, we should make it clear that, that there has been no claim of responsibility uh, at this point to, uh, for any of these events. Not yet. So there L. Paul Bremer sat in the offices of NBC in Washington, D.C. on that afternoon at 12.46 p.m. after having had his plane diverted to Baltimore en route to New York and after having presumably watched the snuff film of the destruction of the World Trade Center Twin Towers numerous times on that morning where 295 of his colleagues at Martian McLennan plus another 63 contractors who worked with Martian McLennan, including presumably those people who were involved in the meeting that Richard Grove was heading to on that morning. After having watched that, he sat there cool and collected and delivered the official narrative of 9-11, talking about the terrorists behind the attack and how there would inevitably need to be some sort of response to this this terrorist outrage. So there it was, and, well, wait, it gets even more interesting because Paul Bremer was also directly related to some of the companies that very much figure in the investigation into the destruction of the Twin Towers. In the impact zone of the North Tower was a company called Marsh & McLennan, which at the time was the world's largest insurance brokerage company. One of Marsh's executives was a guy named L. Paul Bremer, who was also the chairman of the Congressional National Commission on Terrorism from 1999 to 2000, and the U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Counterterrorism from 1986 to 1989. Instead of going to work on the day of 9-11 and dying inside the towers with hundreds of his employees, Bremer decided to go on MSNBC and tell the world that Osama bin Laden was behind the attacks and possibly Iraq and Iran. And then he demanded the most severe military response we can come up with. L. Paul Bremer was called away from Marsh in 2003 to become the Iraq occupation governor, a role he has been widely criticized for. So Bremer not only worked inside the buildings, but had offices directly in the impact zone of the South Tower where Flight 175 would hit. He missed work on 9-11 to give us the official story on national television and went on to be the Iraq occupation governor. You really can't get more connected to 9-11 than that. Oh wait, you can, sorry. I forgot to mention that Bremer was also the former manager for Kissinger Associates, 
He was a member of the board for Axo Nobel, the parent of International Paint Company, which produced a fireproofing application for skyscrapers called Interchar. Bremer was also on the International Advisory Board for the Japanese mining and machinery company Komatsu, which at the time had been involved in a joint venture agreement with Dresser Industries, the oil services intelligence front where Prescott Bush Sr. and George H.W. Bush got their start with Neil Mallon. Anyway, the Komatsu Dresser Mining Division operated from 1988 to 1990 and in July 1996, it patented a nanothermite demolition device that could, quote, demolish a concrete structure at high efficiency while preventing a secondary problem due to noise, flying chips and dust, and the like. What we've just been watching is a clip from the very informative must-see video 9-11 Conspiracy Solved from 9-11 researcher Jeremy Reese. And I will, of course, put the link into the full video so you can continue watching that full presentation that goes into so many of the different points, details, names, and events that have been identified by researchers like Kevin Ryan and Mark Gaffney and others over a period of several years now, putting together, again, the painstaking research that really does connect so many of these dots. And as Paul Bremer, of course, not only deeply connected with some of the events of 9-11, but then going on to become the occupation governor of Iraq, let's turn to another part of that 9-11 conspiracy solve video and another person who ended up with Bremer in Iraq, helping to train the Iraqi police forces. And that's a character by the name of Bernard Carrick, someone who just recently was released from federal prison after having served a four-year sentence on a variety of charges, including conspiracy, mail fraud, wire fraud, and lying to the IRS. This is someone who's had a very interesting career in a number of respects, having started out in the U.S. Army as stationed in Korea. He was discharged in 1977 and eventually ended up in the New York City Police Department, where he gradually worked his way up to police commissioner, the position that he held at the time of 9-11. And it's in that capacity that he while also engaged in some very interesting activities on the morning of 9-11. In fact, being at Giuliani's right-hand man, visible in most of the footage and pictures of Giuliani that day, and someone who was there when Giuliani was the first to declare that there were no explosives at the World Trade Center, etc. So a very interesting figure in his own right. Let's look to, at a short clip from the 9-11 Conspiracy Solve video about Bernard Carrick. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you've all heard the uh, scandals recently surrounding former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, President Bush's uh, choice a few weeks ago to head the Department of Homeland Security. Well, since Carrick withdrew his nomination last week, a new scandal has come out every day about Carrick's past. Every single day. So far, these are all true. He's allegedly hired an illegal alien as a nanny, had shady dealings with the mob, had an affair with both a New York City corrections officer and the editor of his autobiography, married his second wife without divorcing his first wife, had sexual liaisons in an apartment donated to World Trade Center recovery workers. Well, as you can imagine, everybody's wondering what the hell is going to be next. Giuliani's sidekick on 9-11 was police commissioner Bernard Carrick who appeared to be coaching some of Rudy's actions that day, keeping him away from the media and even answering questions for him about explosives in the buildings. In fact, Bernard Carrick gave us the first official government pronouncement that no explosives were involved in the destruction of the World Trade Center buildings. Carrick's department was also the same one that found that pristine, completely undamaged hijacker's passport, which survived a plane impact and fireball, which destroyed two titanium black boxes and three towers. Yeah. Carrick would later receive a nomination from President Bush to become Director of Homeland Security, which he declined for personal and political reasons, and instead took a job training the Iraqi police force in Iraq alongside L. Paul Bremer. Both men are credited for turning Iraq into the unwinnable quagmire it is today. In February of 2010, Carrick was sentenced to four years in federal prison for conspiracy and fraud charges, unrelated to the crimes of 9-11, unfortunately, but it still goes to show you what kind of person he is. Definitely the kind of person you'd want inside the New York City police force during a staged event like 9-11. Well, let, let's uh, let's talk about someone else who's uh, related to Bremer, ended up in Iraq with Bremer, was also related to Giuliani on the scene in New York. I'm talking about Bernard Carrick of the NYPD there, um, a yes. very interesting character who had an interesting part to play on 9-11 and then, as as I say, start, ended up in Iraq with Bremer. Let's talk a little bit about him. Right. Um, 
he came from the New York City police chief. Uh, I believe he's good old buddy of Giuliani's, and him and Giuliani go back. I, I, I believe he's got a lot of uh, connections to. Uh, well, I don't believe it's it's a proven fact. Heck, there's a documented court case. He served. He just served. He just got out of jail. Um, a couple federal prison, not jail, is a big difference. He just got out of federal prison a few months ago for uh, corruption and conspiracy charges, unrelated to 9/11. But um, it's related to some of the other business dealings and associates he had while he was New York City police commissioner, and. Um, you know, New York, I don't know anyone who's ever been there. Uh, I just feel it's one of the most corrupt places on the planet. I just feel, uh, I feel like corruption oozes from that uh, place. I've driven by it. I've been there. I just, I just can't imagine that the uh, New York City Police Commissioner would not have some sort of interesting mafia connections or something. Um, and uh, also, Bernard Carrick's uh, department was the ones that found that passport that allegedly came from Satam El Sequami's passport pocket. That he's, he flew he flew the plane through the building with the passport in his pocket, and that it flew through this building and wound up on the street in completely pristine condition, not even singed or burnt or dented or scratched, and yet they couldn't find uh, the titanium black boxes. But uh, <laughs> I thought that was interesting that that passport was found by Carrick's department, and uh, that's an interesting fact because um, as if you are to believe, as any fool would probably draw that conclusion that is that was in fact uh, planted or manufactured evidence there's no way a passport can go through an entire steel building in a fireball and still be in that condition then it's the next logical question is well who could have been responsible for placing that there and um, it's interesting the other place um, Carrick appeared at he appeared a lot um, in the action of all the footage from Giuliani and Giuliani's movements on the day of 9-11. Um, Carrick seemed, seemed to be following him around the entire day, coaching a lot of his movements. And uh, sort of it seemed like he knew more than what Giuliani knew. Or I, I don't know which of them knew more or, or, or what they exactly they knew, if anything. But um, they both seemed to be acting very suspicious that day. Um, Carrick is, of course, credited with giving the first official government pronouncement that no explosives were used. Uh, all the news stations at the first press conference, the only question on people's minds were, were explosives used? Uh, what happened to these towers? How were they blown up? And uh, his response was, no, nothing like that of the sort. And so he gave us the official announcement that no explosives were used. Uh, then, of course, he was actually, um, he was nominated, I believe, to be Director of Homeland Security believe it or not. Uh, he turned down that. I think he realized it would be kind of obvious and, and stupid for him to even consider taking that after the kind of the heat that would be on him and on the attention that it would draw to himself. He's So he decided, yeah, I'll just go and tag along with Bremer in Iraq and help train the Iraqi police force. And, um, and that's sort of where he was until uh, his, until, uh, of course, we all know he went to federal prison for four years. Uh, back in, it was actually only two, three years because it was back in 2010, so, and he just got out in March. But it's interesting, uh, it just kind of goes to show you um, another aspect that they have the New York, New York City governor um, in their pocket, the New York City police chief in their pocket. Um, I mean, those are two key guys to have uh, as co-conspirators if you're going to pull off an operation like this, and uh, two necessary figures in order to ensure it all goes down properly and nobody asks any questions, or at least not the right questions. Once again, 9-11 researcher Jeremy Reese, and I will once again wholeheartedly encourage listeners not only to go and listen to that full interview and not only to watch the full video 9-11 Conspiracy Solved, but to watch all of his 9-11 work at Warcrime911, his YouTube channel, which will be linked up in the show notes for today's episode. As again, he has done a great job of synthesizing and really putting in a straightforward manner the research of people like Kevin Ryan and Mark Gaffney and others who have been connecting these dots for a very long time now. But moving on, let's take a look at another part of the apparatus that was wielded by the shadow government on 9-11 and around 9-11 in order to facilitate those attacks. And I refer to the State Department, of course, a crucial part of the United States government machinery that uh, is another layer of defense, or at least potentially so, against the very type of invasion by these hijackers that is, has alleged to have been the real foundation of this 9-11 event. 
And in, at the time of 2000, uh, September 11, 2001, the State Department was, of course, under the purview of Secretary of State Colin Powell and his right-hand man, Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, a man who has a very interesting and colorful history that extends back decades now, back at least as far as the Vietnam War. And he has been alleged to have been involved in the drug running and money laundering operations that were such an important part of the U.S. government's involvement in Vietnam. And for more on that history and the history extending out through the BCCI scandal, the Bank of Crooks and Criminals International, and extending into Iran-Contra affair and into the 1990s, for more on that background, I will direct people to an excellent series of posts that appeared on BoilingFrogsPost.com a few years ago by one uh, contributor there that really does go into a great degree of detail about Armitage and his interesting background and connections to the deep state. But let's take a look specifically uh, surrounding the events of 9-11, where as Deputy Secretary of State, he oversaw the number three people uh, collectively at, at the State Department, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, uh, Mark Grossman, who figures prominently in the testimony of Sibel Edmonds and her, the events surrounding her case, and Undersecretary of State for Management, Grant S. Green, who was the one who oversaw the Visa Express program that was run out of the Jeddah Consulate in Saudi Arabia that helped at least five of the alleged 9-11 hijackers to get their passports, or to get their visas, sorry, to enter the United States, which they supposedly did so. Uh, this is a, a key part of the entire 9-11 debacle that is seldom brought up but is fascinating into and uh, of itself because it ties directly into the testimony of State Department whistleblower J. Michael Springman who worked at the very consulate there in Jeddah where in the 1980s he alleged that the, the State Department, people who were nested in, in the uh, Jeddah consulate uh, uh, the CIA officials that were nested in the Jeddah consulate were in fact overriding the consular services officials who were trying to deny people visa applications and giving those people visa applications specifically because they were terrorists. But they were terrorists on the good side. They were our boys in Afghanistan, including, of course, Osama bin Laden. All right, I'm Mike Springman. Um, some 15 years ago now, I was chief of the visa section at the CIA's consulate at Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. In Jeddah? Yeah. Uh, people were being brought there from all over the Middle East uh, for visas to come to the United States. And I was told they were terrorists that were recruited to come to the U.S. for training and shipped back to Afghanistan for fighting the Soviet soldiers. And this was, when I was there, this was between 1987 and 1989. And it wasn't until I got back to D.C. and talked to the journalist Joe Trento and a couple of other people. One was a guy connected with a local university here in D.C. and another fellow who was uh, with another government agency. Uh, but I learned that, you know, it wasn't visa fraud like I thought at the time. I thought somebody was being paid under the table for this, uh, based on a conversation I had with a guy. And um, I thought that, you know, this was really strange, but I couldn't explain it. And then when Trento and these other people started talking to me, and I said, well, this explains the whole thing. The reason why there was this pressure, the reason why these guys who were not businessmen who were not educated, who were essentially low-level clerk-type people, uh, supermarket checkers, uh, you know, guys who worked in an auto parts store, why visas were being demanded for them. And, you know, they, they the, when I put the pieces together from my three contacts, it was people who were being here, who were brought here, who were recruited by the CIA, and this asset, Osama bin Laden, to come to the United States for training as terrorists and to return them to Afghanistan to fight with the Soviet soldiers there and kill them. 
Fast forward in time several years, and lo and behold, it was this very same consulate in Jeddah from which several of the alleged 9-11 hijackers allegedly got their alleged visas. And there was a lot of allegedness in there because under the Visa Express program, it uh, it basically allowed people to apply to, for a visa without ever even having to meet a consular official face-to-face and confirm their identity. So it really could have been anyone being granted these visas, and it really was just a carte blanche to let anyone into the country. Very interesting program that arose directly um, before 9-11 under the, uh, the purview and under the management of Grant S. Green and his superior, Richard Armitage, who then went on to be one of the people involved in Richard Clark's initiated teleconference, the video conference call that was initiated from the White House Situation Room on 9-11, and which signally failed to defend the country at all whatsoever in any way from any of the attacks. Uh, So again, someone who is neck deep in what happened on 9-11 and basically eyeball deep in in all of the surrounding uh, things that happened, including, of course, his participation in PNAC. He was one of the signatories to some of the key PNAC documents, including the 1998 letter to Bill Clinton urging him to take out Saddam Hussein. And lo and behold, a few years later, just in the months prior to 9-11, Armitage, along with Brent Scowcroft and a few others, were part of the team that was lobbying and trying to persuade the Turkish government to go along with an Iraq invasion and to allow Turkish bases to be used as staging areas for American forces in the invasion of Iraq. And uh, very, very interesting pieces of this puzzle. And earlier this week, I did have the chance to talk to Sibel Edmonds about Grossman and about uh, Armitage and others at the State Department and their potential connections to 9-11 and really what this means in terms of their means, motive, and opportunity to help facilitate these attacks. And, 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 you know, you brought up something very important, and, and, and I, and I want to talk about something that uh, may not sound as relevant until I finish, maybe, and that has to do for some people who do not really look at the significance of PNAC, okay, and, and, the, and the investigation that never took place with 9-11. And one of the things that I do, you know, my, my bachelor degrees were in criminal psychology and, and, and criminal justice, okay, and... When you look at the criminal laws, okay, let's say you have a case, you have a murder case, okay, that you're looking at, and here is this, let's say a 68, 70 years old guy who's murdered, and let's say there was a big, ginormous life insurance on this guy. One of the first things you do is you look at people with motives, okay? You bring all those people initially as suspects until one by one, you take them out of the suspect list. This was a criminal terror attack here, okay? That process never took place because if that process had taken place just by itself with PNAC and with these guys, we would have seen the initial, at least the initial bucket of suspect list until they were excluded, if they were excluded, to include these people because what happens if there is a letter, okay, from uh, this uh example that I just gave, the 68-year-old guy who's been murdered and the wife or, or someone related to him who can benefit from greatly from this life insurance before this murder took place has put in letter about why this guy needs to die, okay? I mean, this is a very good parallel example to say, in order for me or for us, let's say there's a group of uh, individuals or correspondings in letters for us to do this and have this money, this man, this bastard must be killed or must die, okay? Imagine if a police finds a document like this. And then imagine the police not interviewed the people who wrote these letters, okay? And this should not be looked at, 9-11, any different than a criminal, a simple, classic criminal investigation. When you go and read and when you look at the uh, the emphasis place, and you would think, are they stupid enough to put it in a letter that we need a major terror attack here at home for for our points, for our principles to be exercised, you know, and for the U.S. to become an empire? This event needs to take place. Well, yeah, there are people who are stupid enough who put it in a letter and then commit murders. That's why they go to jail. But in this case with PNAC, 
you have this letter, you have these signatories, and they didn't only write it. They have been spending years working towards it, okay? And they not being some, some people on the sideline. You're looking at people within the United States government. They put together this letter, okay? And they work towards it. And 9-11 happens. And you have the police or FBI or all the other investigative forces not look at these people, even though just initially, as suspects and get to the bottom of it and interview them and interrogate them and look at their background. I mean, let's say they did. They would have seen that meeting, okay, because it's a recorded meeting between Mark Grossman and, uh, and, and General Mahmoud. General Mahmoud ha has already been established as one of the uh, highly likely financiers of 9-11. Here is number three guy from the State Department on that day having this breakfast meeting, secretive, mysterious meeting with him. And then you're looking at this guy and his boss. They were signatures and they were the players with PNAC. Why didn't we have these types of investigations? Because even the stupidest police force would have conducted such investigations, and that did not take place. So that's why, you know, people say, oh, again, people are bringing up this whole thing of PNAC and these neocons, but I don't think they are looking at it the right way, or maybe some people are presenting some of these hard evidence facts maybe too complicated. So maybe it is important to kind of, because it's pretty simple, you have this letter that is highly suspicious. You have this document, PNAC. You have these players with the means and motives because they are indicating their motives, okay? And, uh, and the murder, the terrorism, the criminal event has taken place, the same ones that have been sought by these people and have been worked towards. It is pretty simple because with all these criminal cases and terrorism is a crime, okay? Murdering those people is a crime, and you have to look at the same look at it the same way as any criminal investigation, and that is the means. Has there been any you know premeditation? The means, the motives, and the beneficiaries, and none of these were ever asked with any of the investigations. Once again, Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com making the very obvious point that shouldn't need to be articulated, but unfortunately still does, not only to the purveyors of the official 9-11 government myth, but to members of the 9-11 truth community besides, that means, motive, and opportunity has always been the criteria by which investigators identify the likely suspects in any criminal investigation, and the crimes of 9-11 are no exception to that rule. And in that regard, all of the top-level signatories to the PNAC documents need to be on that suspect list and need to be investigated for their potential role in the events of 9-11, being part of an organization that one year before the 9-11 attacks put forth a document calling for a new Pearl Harbor, the very type of new Pearl Harbor that was delivered so spectacularly and so gruesomely just one year later. Now let's turn our attention to another absolutely invaluable source that I exhort or actually I demand that the listeners out there turn to in their own investigations attempting to answer the question that we're putting forward today, who was behind the 9-11 attacks. I'm referring to the research of Kevin Ryan, a tireless campaigner for 9-11 Truth, who sacrificed his own career at underwriters' laboratories by questioning the official company line that held that the World Trade Center uh, Twin Towers collapsed unproblematically due to fires from jet fuel. And when he refused to go along with that, he eventually lost his position at, uh, at underwriters' laboratories. And from that time forward, he has been absolutely relentless in his pursuit of 9-11 Truth, having been not only on the board of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and a founding member of Scholars for Truth and Justice of 9-11, uh, being on uh, the, the committee for the 9-11 Journal of 9-11 Studies, and recently turning his attention to the wider scope, the wider problem of identifying the actual suspects that could be named in any serious criminal investigation of 9-11. 
And in that regard, let's turn to his latest book, Another 19, in which he attempts to identify the legitimate 9-11 suspects and posits a different 19 from the 19 hijackers armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis halfway in a cave halfway around the world that we were expected to believe did pull off the spectacular gruesome attacks of 9-11. In this remarkable book, Kevin Ryan goes into an incredible amount of detail outlining the real suspects that we could look at in any serious 9-11 investigation and the reasons why these people are interesting. And everyone that we've talked about so far today, from Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney to Bernard Carrick to others, are named and uh, and examined in this book. So I, I hope that people will go and take a look at this work. It is absolutely essential reading. And Although there's no way to do justice to the work in its entirety, let's take a look at one specific example of one person that likely very few people in the audience have ever even heard of, even if they are part of the 9-11 Truth Movement, but someone who had a very interesting and very critical role to play on the morning of 9-11, even though he was, like many others, uh, delinquent, AWOL, absent from from his uh, line of duty that morning. I'm referring to Lieutenant General Michael A. Canavan. So let's read from a section of the book, Another 19, where Kevin Ryan outlines who Lieutenant General Michael A. Canavan was, what his position was, and why it was so crucial to what took place on 9-11. Quote, The hijack coordinator at FAA headquarters, Lieutenant General Michael A. Canavan, had been in his position for only nine months and would leave the job within a month after 9-11. Surprisingly, although Canavan was mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report, he was not cited for his role as the FAA's hijack coordinator, a role that was at the center of the failure to intercept the planes on 9-11. Instead of being mentioned as the hijack coordinator, Canavan was in the report because he had been the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, which ran the military's counterterrorism operations and covert missions. The report described Canavan's part in the failure to follow through on a carefully laid out 1998 CIA plan to capture Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. Canavan was quoted as saying that the plan put tribal Afghanis at too much risk, and that the operation was too complicated for the CIA. Ironically, after 9-11, few if any US leaders would express concern for tribal Afghanis while engaging in a war of aggression in Afghanistan. In any case, it seems odd that Michael Canavan occupied what turned out to be the most important position relative to the failure to intercept the hijacked planes on 9-11, and was also involved in evaluating plans to capture OBL just three years earlier. Apart from the coincidence that he was selected as the most qualified person for both of those very different positions, he was also a central figure in these two different reasons why the 9-11 attacks were said to have succeeded. When he first started the job as FAA's hijack coordinator, just nine months before the attack, Canavan was in charge of running training exercises that were pretty damn close to the 9-11 plot, according to John Hawley, an employee in the FAA's intelligence division. In his comments to the 9-11 commission, Canavan denied having participated in such exercises, and the commission apparently didn't think to reconcile the conflicting comments it had received from Hawley and Canavan on this important issue. Canavan's job as hijack coordinator was clearly the most important link in the communications chain between the FAA and the military. But the 9-11 Commission did not address this hijack coordinator position and did not mention the alarming fact that we don't know who actually handled the job of hijack coordinator on the day of 9-11. We don't know because Canavan said he was in Puerto Rico that morning and claimed to have missed out on everything that happened that day. End quote. Earlier this month, Kevin Ryan appeared on Guns and Butter with Bonnie Faulkner to talk more about Another 19 and the various suspects outlined in this groundbreaking work, including Canavan. Uh, Kevin, how long did it take you to write this book, Another 19? It's so dense, it must have taken a very long time. Well, you know, I've been studying the events of 9-11 for 10 years now, and I spent 
the first six years of that time focusing primarily on the World Trade Center and and scientific work related to that, uh, evaluation of the government's reports, which took a long time to produce and were very detailed. And, and so the first six years I focused on that. And in 2009, I really started looking at who might have been responsible for 9-11. So this book is a culmination of the last four years of research in, in which I'm trying to answer specific questions about what happened and what has not been explained. So about four years worth of work. It is, it is a very dense book and there's a lot of information, but if you're interested in finding out what really happened on 9-11, I believe that, that you'll find it useful. Once again, Kevin Ryan talking to Bonnie Faulkner of Guns and Butter about his groundbreaking work and essential reading, Another 19, that I will once again exhort everyone out there to please go and read. For more information, not only about the people that we've talked about today, not only the Donald Rumsfelds and the uh, the Richard Armitages and the uh, Lieutenant General Michael Canavans, but also the Louis Fries and the Richard Clarks and uh, the Rudy Giuliani's and all of the other people who definitely deserve to be on this suspect list, but which heartbreakingly we do not have time to give any justice to in a short podcast like this one. So once again, I will put in the proviso and the caveat that what we've looked at today is only scraping the top of the barrel when it comes to the research that has gone on under the in the past several years to really expand the scope of the discussion on 9-11. And the, to the extent that the 9-11 truth community has fallen behind this research, it is an indictment of that community itself. Because once again, we are pressing forward, and ultimately, I think the goals have to be twofold. The first is to actually achieve justice for 9-11, and we have to believe that there is still a possibility for that to happen. And the obvious analog, once again, unfortunately rears its ugly head, the JFK assassination investigation. And once again, the obvious analog would be something like District Attorney Jim Garrison stepping forward to start in a, a criminal uh, trial seeking to prosecute someone for the assassination of JFK. And it's the bravery of someone like Jim Garrison that we would really need in this connection to start some sort of some sort of criminal proceeding that would have any hope of actually bringing any of these perpetrators to justice or beginning the real criminal investigation that would be able to pry out even more information from the death-like vice grip that this information has unfortunately been under for 12 years now. But at the same time, as I think we do have to strive towards that goal, and we do have to, regardless, do the end, the thankless tasks of putting together this information and the research that would form the basis for any such prosecution, we also have to be very realistic about the possibilities of such a prosecution ever attaining justice through the court system. And again, the analog of Jim Garrison presents probably the best warning of what such an investigation might ultimately end up as, as we now know that Jim Garrison's investigation was thwarted and hampered by the CIA and the FBI from its very inception. And uh, not only was it infiltrated and spied upon, uh, not only was it derailed by plants within the investigation, Investigation, but of course, many of the key witnesses also went mysteriously missing and or dead during the course of that investigation and that trial. So unfortunately, just as Jim Garrison was derailed, I would be very surprised if any similar court case was not derailed. But that A does not take off the responsibility of all of us to continue striving for that justice and B, perhaps more importantly, in the long run, in the bigger picture, although justice for the events of 9-11 always has to be the front and center of any 9-11 truth movement. But I think secondarily, we also have to understand that we are winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the public. We are winning in the court of public opinion where the judgment is being made. And now more so than ever, more so than in any other time of history, at least modern political history, the idea of false flag terrorism is part of the mainstream discourse. This is a true 
victory that has been achieved by the alternative media community generally, and of course the 9-11 truth movement spearheading that understanding, whereas just a few years ago, people were almost universally confronted with the question, why would the government attack itself when positing the idea that 9-11 was an inside job? People no longer need to be brought up to speed on this idea of false flag terrorism, and we see even in mainstream sources now, they are forced to confront this idea of false flag terrorism, and with every event that they use to try to shape the political discourse, whether it be a Boston Marathon bombing or a Syrian chemical weapons attack, they are now having to fend off a public that is increasingly skeptical of everything that they do. And this is one of the victories of the 9-11 Truth Movement that we really have achieved in the last several years by pressing forward and educating the public about false flag terrorism, about the fact that it does always benefit the power structure for these cataclysmic, catastrophic events to go forward exactly as they have been written, literally written into the script by the uh, the Bremers and others who have warned about these attacks before they occur in the exact way that, that, that we were warned about. So again, I will leave it to all of you out there to continue going through the investigation and the research of people like Kevin Ryan and Jeremy Reese and Mark Gaffney and others who have been putting this together over the years, but also, of course, to continue the investigation yourself and to continue connecting these dots, because this is the way forward for 9-11 Truth. It does not lie in endless internecine squabbling over the destruction of the Twin Towers. However spectacular and spectacularly diverting that information might be, no matter how interesting it may be and how how, uh, useful it may be for bringing others into the movement, at the end of the day, we need to have much, much firmer ground to stand on in order to convince anyone even ourselves, let alone the general public, of the veracity of our claims. And at the end of the day, that is what 9-11 Truth is and should be about. On that note, we're going to leave things there for today. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast and asking you to join me again next week. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.